The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. At the center of peace I stand. Nothing can harm me here. I read that quotation from Swami Paramahansa Yogananda on an airplane when I was returning from living in London for almost a year at the ripe old age of 18. And I've remembered it to this very day. So particularly in times when a lot of people are afraid, of course we have to do all the good sense things that we need to do to take care of ourselves and keep ourselves safe and look out for those we care about. And yet at another level, it's really important to me to also remember At the center of peace, we stand. Nothing can harm us here. Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Program. Thank you so very much for joining us. If you're new, check us out at MainStreetVegan.net. There's lots and lots going on over there. You can subscribe to our newsletter and all kinds of things. For those who were listening last week and heard that my husband was in an accident, He is better, and thank you for all the well-wishing. He's been in the hospital now two weeks, but he is on the PT and OT ward, meaning that instead of the doctors and nurses doing all the work, he's doing some of it himself, and they think that he will be out a week from today. So life is good, and it goes on. In the second half of today's show, we're going to have so much fun talking about Buddha bowls and vegan business with um, Instagram influencer Kara Cifelli. And right now, we're going to have the opportunity to do something that's really rare for us. Because we're a podcast as well as a live radio show, I book really far in advance. And so we almost never get to do something super timely, like ripped from the headlines. But today, we actually get to do that, I have the wonderful opportunity uh, to be introducing to you Heather Greenhouse. Heather is an animal rights activist here in New York City, and slaughterhouses are her 
particular area of expertise. Heather is also, I am proud to say, a graduate vegan lifestyle coach and educator uh, from Main Street Vegan Academy. And just yesterday, she had a stunning opinion piece published in the New York Daily News talking about shuttering New York City's slaughterhouses. And I'm sure that if you're like most people, you're saying, huh, slaughterhouses in New York City? Who knew? Well, Heather Greenhouse knows, and she's going to educate us. Welcome, Heather. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here, and thank you for writing this stunning article. I think most of us just think, okay, slaughterhouses are horrible, and they are far, far away. They're not close to where people live. They're certainly not in urban areas. But you're telling us they are in some of the most populated cities in America. Tell us what you know. Yeah, that's right, actually. Most people are shocked to find out, um, especially New Yorkers. We have over 80 slaughterhouses in New York City in all five boroughs. And the vast majority of them are located in residential areas. I mean, people live next door, they live above them. People, you know, they're right in the middle of residential areas. Some of them are across the street from schools, playgrounds. So they're right in the midst of the city, you know, with high traffic, people walking by. Um, and these slaughterhouses exist. And in New York City, they're predominantly uh, what's called live markets. So they, it is a slaughterhouse, but it's a storefront. So customers can walk in and see all of the animals alive in cages um, and choose who they want to be slaughtered. Um, and then, you know, take the dead body home with them. <laughs> That's a very different way of consuming meat in this particular culture because I've traveled in other parts of the world where people are very interested in wanting to see the animal that will become their meat. But in our culture, we tend to want to hide it as, as much as possible. Yeah, so, that's definitely true. I think most Americans, when they think of slaughterhouses, like you said, they picture them far away in some large building you know, in the middle of nowhere and they never see it. Everything happens behind closed doors. Um, but the live markets are a lot different. Um, and in my op-ed, actually, I pointed out that the coronavirus originated, they think, um, from a live market, just as we have here in New York City, but in China. Um, so my op-ed was kind of about how the New York City slaughterhouses are actually just as dangerous. Um, and it's only a matter of time before uh, a deadly infectious disease outbreak could, you know, um, potentially come from one of these places in New York City. Well, this is, is very timely, obviously, um, because of the coronavirus. But that's not the first virus that has started in a live market uh, somewhere on Earth. I, I remember seeing some of these uh, in mainland China and in Taiwan when I was traveling there in the 90s. And of course, many of the animals that are consumed there are not animals that we consume here. And my understanding is that they're thinking the coronavirus came from a, a kind of anteater? Yeah, they. so the latest is that they think it may have originated from the pangolin. 
which is a mammal, but resembles, yeah, kind of like a scaly anteater. Um, and the scales, the pangolin is actually the, the most trafficked animal in the world. And unfortunately, they um, use them for their scales, which they use in traditional Chinese medicine. So they're trafficked all throughout China, and they think that coronavirus may have come from a pangolin. Now, I think that a lot of people would hear this, Heather, and say, yeah, but that's an exotic animal from far away. You know, you're saying that, that chickens could be that dangerous. Could they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, many of the diseases that we have uh, came from farm animals. There's avian flu, swine flu, H1N1, um, um, SARS, uh, they think, actually came from farm animals, anthrax, um, syphilis, they think, came from sheep. I mean, there's just there's salmonella, E. coli, mad cow disease. I mean, there's just so many that come from animals that um, here in the U.S. We're, we consider as food, the farm animals. Um, so, yeah, I really do think that um, it is just as dangerous here. And it's, it's a common misconception that diseases come from only exotic animals. Because as we know, many of the diseases, uh, some of which I just said, come from farm animals. And so it is very risky to have these live markets in residential areas in the city with people walking by. Um, they're spilling blood and guts and feces all over the sidewalk and the streets and people step in it, track it all around. I mean, it's literally a ticking time bomb. Like, I think it's really just a matter of time. And in fact, in 2012, um, avian flu was found in a Brooklyn live market and Japan, because of that, Japan banned all um, poultry imports from New York for like over a year. So it, can uh, so it can go both ways. It can come from somewhere far away and it could come from here and potentially affect somewhere far away. Oh, totally. Yeah. Wow. So I think that if I were still a meat eater, which I have to remember, there was a time in my life that I was, mm -hmm. and, and perhaps I would have wanted to get my meat at a place like this if I thought it was fresher or, or better. I think maybe people that prefer this kind of meat, it's sort of like, like vegans and plant-based people who, who want to go to the farmer's market. You know, we want the freshest and the best. So I'm thinking that may be why people want to go to these places, but they must go there with the idea that they're very regulated and, and checked often. Is this not true? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, these are really good points. Um, First, yeah, they do go there, the customers, because it's part of their culture. I mean, my family is from Trinidad, and it's also part of my culture. When I go to Trinidad, it's just the norm. You go to a live market, that's where you get your meat. Um, so, you know, immigrants from different places who have a culture like that, obviously um, shop at places like that in New York. So they, they do think that the meat from these places where it's freshly killed um, tastes better. And it tastes better than like meat from a supermarket that's been frozen or refrigerated. Um, but I think what 
even a lot of them don't realize, so they think it's so fresh, these animals come from factory farms. They're the exact same animals that are dead in the supermarket, the same exact ones. They're sick, they're injured, many of them die along the way. You can like often find dead ones even in the live markets. It's just absolutely horrific. And you mentioned them being um, under-regulated. Yeah, it's something that I do think the customers of these places, um, even though I, obviously I disagree with them, I think that they would want to know also um, these places are severely under-regulated. They're actually almost never inspected. Um, I know that sounds outrageous, but it's true. Um, sometimes these places only get inspected when um, there's like a major complaint. Uh, and the complaint would have to be really bad. And then when they are inspected, they are issued numerous violations. Um, sometimes they're even operating without a license. And there's just no consequences. So essentially, these places are operating above the law. I mean, they're like completely lawless. They get away with so much. They're breaking state codes, city codes, even federal codes, because the ones that slaughter large animals are under the jurisdiction of the USDA. So the whole thing is a very tricky matter because New York State regulates them. Um, the city says they have nothing to do with them. The city Department of Health will not do anything. They point the finger at the state. The state points the finger at the city, even though they know the city can't do anything. And then the state, in my experience, has also pointed the finger to the USDA. And also in my experience, there are like, I recently um, tried to get records for one place and the USDA had no records, zero, nothing. They've never inspected this place. So, and that's just one. And I can imagine what the others are like. I'm still gathering records um, for many of them, but it's, you know, the more we find out, the scarier it is. And there's a... Um, a law that's been enacted since 2008 that um, prohibits the licensing of a slaughterhouse within 1,500 feet of a residence in New York City, which is the entire city. Um, so that's been on the books since 2008. It has to be renewed every four years, and it has, and so it's up for renewal this year again. But I just want to read um, some quotes from the law itself. This is from New York State legislators saying this. Um, Hang on, what they say, hold on one sec. Um, experience in local communities has shown that these markets are not monitored appropriately due to the inadequate number of state and city inspectors necessary to ensure market compliance with health, food safety, and environmental laws. Um, that's another thing is they're, um, they're polluting the environment. They're illegally dumping into sewers. They're illegally um, disposing of trash into the sanitation department. Um, and they've been also issued violations by the EPA, the Department of Sanitation. I mean, it's just, it's everything. And it's a, it's a huge mess. <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like it. So thank goodness for activists like yourself who are paying attention to this and and for writing this in incredible piece. Now, we'll get back uh, to some of these uh, facts in a little bit, but because other activists are listening, other people who, who might find something like this going on in their city or some other issue, and they might want to do what you did. I mean, you got an op-ed 
in a major metropolis newspaper. And most people think that is impossible. So what gave you the idea and how did you make it happen? Yeah, um, I actually probably thought it was impossible for me because I'm not a writer. Yeah, I'm, I'm an activist and I have knowledge in this area. But um, yeah, I've never written anything like this before. But I just I thought of it because of the coronavirus. And as soon as I heard that this coronavirus originated at a, at a live market and, you know, I'm interested in the live markets here, I'm like, wait a minute, the, we have the same things here. Like people need to know about this because like I said, most people don't know. And when they find out, they're horrified. Most people, um, New Yorkers who live near these places um, do not want them in the neighborhood. They, the smell is unbearable. Um, you know, they're stepping in all of the disgusting matter that they pollute the sidewalk with, blood, feces, and all that. Um, and so I just, you know, thought of all of these things that are happening in New York City and how it is potentially just as dangerous here. And so I felt like people need to know about this. So I wrote it, um, and it was very long. It was much longer than what got published. And I told Allie about it. She's the president of Voters for Animal Rights, which I'm on the board. And um, also Bonnie Clapper, I have to thank her because she really helped me a lot. Um, so Bonnie and Allie helped me edit it and get it down. And Allie sent it to um, a contact at the Daily News and they were interested. And they actually published it, I think, the next day. I didn't even know it was going to be out, actually, until it was. And oh, that's amazing. And yeah. I, I know you said in our, our pre-interview that they did ask for, for more backup documentation, which I think mm -hmm. is very good, because I think people sometimes also wonder, well, okay, I read it in a paper, but somebody could have just made this stuff up. But you've got everything really very, very strongly uh, documented. And there's something that you said here that I just thought really summed it up. You say, the evidence is clear. The exploitation, confinement, and slaughter of farm animals is the major cause of many preventable illnesses in humans. In addition to committing egregious acts of animal cruelty, every slaughterhouse is a horrible disease vector operating openly on city streets and has the potential to be a source of the next deadly pandemic. I mean, that should be a meme on every vegan social media everywhere. You know, it's one thing to think about, oh yeah, animal products, they cause heart disease and they seem to contribute to Alzheimer's and blah, blah, blah. But the idea that's kind of far off down the road. I think we often think, yeah, well, maybe someday I might get that. But the idea of an epidemic of a virus, of something that, you know, you could catch very quickly, that's very present. So I'm certainly going to share what you said. I mean, Thank you. It's, it's important that, that we know all this. So Heather, just tell us a little bit about you. How, how did you become a slaughterhouse activist? <laughs> Um, it started uh, about three years ago um, when uh, a, cat, a bull escaped from a slaughterhouse in Queens. And it was all over the news, and I was watching it at work, and I just burst into tears. I was so emotional. I could not stand the sight of watching him 
run through the streets. Just I could feel his desperation. It was just I'm like getting teary saying it now. Um, and I just felt for him so much. And that kind of started it all. I mean, we named him Courage the Bull and we had a vigil for him. And we still do it every year. We just had one actually just a few weeks ago for the third anniversary at the slaughterhouse where he escaped from in Queens. And, um, yeah, I just, I just got into it since then. I wanted to learn about it. Oh, Courage the Bull, um, he was running for his life, escaping, and he was shot by police with eight tranquilizers, and he died. And he was on his way to be rescued. He was going to go to a sanctuary, because many times when animals escape, they do go to a sanctuary, thankfully. Um, and what's interesting is that most people, when they see this, uh, this type of thing on the news, an animal escapes you know, from a slaughterhouse or a farm or something, they root for that animal. I mean, animal eaters themselves, they want that animal to be free. Um, so I think that that's really interesting and it's, uh, they should hopefully be able to make the connection between that animal that they can see running for their lives and who they want to be rescued and all the others that didn't make it, that didn't get to escape, that are suffering behind closed doors. Absolutely. So, well, I'm so happy that, that you've chosen this. I remember when I first went vegetarian in my youth, we talked so much about reverence for life, about the idea that that someone who makes it here to this planet deserves to live. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. an animal, you know, they're, they're here. They deserve to have a life. And now so much of the talk seems to be from a lot of people, well, I, I eat humane meat. And so my the animal that was on my dinner plate had a, a great life and one bad day. But it's more than one bad day. You know, it, it, it's transit, it, it's fear, it's, it's lack of food and water. And, and if they escape, you know, sometimes they're, they're brought back. It, it's a terrible thing. Yeah, sometimes they are brought back. Um, absolutely. So yeah, another... Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because there's so many things that you're interested in. I know that slaughterhouses are your specialty. But you've also been very involved with uh, trying to get the sale of fur banned here in New York City, as it has been in San Francisco and West Hollywood and some other enlightened places. So um, what's happening with that? That's still happening. Um, It's a difficult bill to get passed, obviously. The fur industry, our opposition, has a lot of money and power, and they've been fighting hard. But um, I think that we have a lot more passion, and we can do it. So we we do need... you know, New York City residents to call their council members and still urge them to support the bill to ban the sale of fur in New York City, because just once it has enough co-sponsors of council members, it can be voted on and um, would be absolutely amazing if we could ban fur in New York City. I mean, that would just be, fur is dead. Like, that would be (laughs) the end of it, you know? Amen. I went to the Fashion Week showing of Pilush, the wonderful vegan 
furs and she'll put on the back refolution and mm -hmm. these wonderful notifications that this is is not fur from animals but but fur from plants and from all these wonderful fabrics that are available now and if we can just convince the people who believe that fur gives them a, a status gives them something to to feel better about themselves to just shift the message that some of these other fabrics do it completely, entirely, and kindly. Maybe you can write an op-ed on that too. <laughs> I would love to, yeah, definitely. Someone should, for sure, because yes, fur can be ethically made and just as, I mean, there's fake fur out there that you can't tell the difference. So yeah, there's really sure. no reason to kill animals anymore for it. So I, I wanted to save the toughest question for the end. And that is that in, in some of these issues where animals are abused and where we see that there's also danger to humans, we're often asking people from different cultures uh, in the case of, of the, uh, the live markets, our wonderful immigrants who have come to New York City with so much courage and bravery to consider changing a cultural practice. How do we do that without seeming like these elitist animal rights people? Yeah, it's tricky. It's definitely very tricky. Um, I think, I mean... My family participates in, you know, shopping at live markets, um, so I totally get it. But I think if we focus on the animals and the cruelty, and it doesn't matter who's doing it or what culture it is, it's all—it's always wrong, no matter where it is or who's doing it or what tradition it's for. Um, if we can put the focus on that, but also on the health aspect, I think that's a really big part of it because it, it really is a major health and safety hazard in the city. I mean, it's just outrageous and it's scary and it puts us all in danger. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, and that's that's all so important and, and so good. I'm just so happy that, that you were doing all of this and we will have information about Heather, a link to the article, a link to people who are working on, on behalf of this issue. So if you're in New York or you care about New York or other cities as well, I mean, there's uh, Chicago has far fewer live markets, but there's work being done out there to, uh, to get them gone, just like the uh, old time slaughterhouses. So thank you so, so very much, Heather Greenhouse. And um, maybe you can come back again to tell us how the live markets have all closed up. That'll be a great day. I would love that. I'm Yay. looking forward to that day. <laughs> well, that, that makes two of us and I'm sure many, many more. Thanks, everybody, for being with us for this half of the Main Street Vegan Program. And we will be back after these lovely messages from the good people at Unity Online Radio. Stay with us. Discover the power within. 
Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back to the program. It is a pleasure as ever to have you with us. Every single listener to this podcast, whether I've heard from you, whether I know your name or not, is so precious to me. So we do have a Main Street Vegan podcast listeners Facebook group. That's kind of our little inner circle if you wanted to join that. And otherwise, just keep up with us on, on social media. We're Main Street Vegan on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So we just love to be connected. I'd love to hear from you the kinds of shows you like the best, what you're looking for. When we have the doctors on, if you have any specific questions for them, let me know. We will address it. And I also want to do a shout out to the nice people of Compliment. They are at lovecompliment.com. And they make a couple of wonderful supplements by Vegans for Vegans. Compliment Plus is kind of their multi but it doesn't have everything in it. It just has in it the things that could be missing in a really good plant-exclusive diet. So there's the B12 and and the EPA, DHA, omega-3 fatty acids, and also some really good immune support in there from uh, zinc, from selenium. So if this is of interest to you, check them out at lovecomplement.com. And because you are in the family, if you choose to try out Complement Plus, Just put Main Street Vegan Plus, that's Main Street Vegan in caps with a plus sign, in the discount box for a little savings. So I'm now so excited to be introducing somebody to whom I'm speaking for the first time, but I have been seeing her all over Instagram uh, for a longer time. And this is Kara Sibeli of Kara's Kitchen. She is a health coach. She helps women heal their relationship with food and their bodies. And she does this work because she herself had an eating disorder about um, some years ago that went on for 10 years. Her most recent book is Vegan Buddha Bowls, Easy Healthy Recipes to Feel Great from the Inside Out. Welcome, Kara. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to be talking to you because the last time you did something like this, you were on a big old TV station in Los Angeles. So uh, (laughs) we're in good company. So what was that like being on KTLA? To be completely honest, it was actually incredibly scary for me. The idea of being on live TV, especially... Um, Los Angeles' like largest, most prominent network. I I almost like didn't do it. I I was to some degree contractually obligated with my publisher to do everything that I could to like promote the book. And so this like I didn't have a choice necessarily to get out of my comfort zone so much. And also I know I would have done it despite the fear, but I was very afraid. However, it was amazing. I'm really glad I did it. My brain totally psyched me out. It was nowhere near as like scary on the other side as I was making it out to be, which was a really valuable lesson in and of itself. But 
overall great experience. Really glad I did it and would love to do it again. And being on live radio, this is another opportunity where I'm like, ooh, it's live, but it's so great to kind of expand past my comfort zone and all of those things. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful experience. I was on the the Oprah show back when, when she had her, her network show a couple of times. And the second time it happened to be live. Usually it wasn't, but that day it was live. And during the first break, she looked at the guests and she said, so how does it feel to be live in front of 35 million people? And I think we were all thinking it felt fine until about two seconds ago. <laughs> but it's kind of like, you know, jumping into the deep end. You do it. And especially when you believe in your message, as I know you do. So let's get into that. How did you get started? How did you get to where you are now? Mm. So there's lots of little dots that connect when I look backwards. You know, when I look backwards, I can see how every dot made sense and was necessary to get me here, even though at the time it might not have made sense, which I think is an experience for a lot of us. So I had an eating disorder for 10 years. Uh, I started to diet and try to lose weight and control my food. Around age 14, 15, I became incredibly insecure in my skin, hyper-focused on my body and what I looked like. I was attaching my worth to my weight. And I really felt this pressure to be like the thinnest and the prettiest because I believed that it was the only way that I'd ever be good enough or feel enough. And my eating disorder took a lot of different shapes, anorexia, bulimia, lots of binge eating and body dysmorphia. And eventually I got to a point where I couldn't take it anymore. It was really dark. It was really painful. And so I decided to like really seriously work on my recovery and do whatever it took to take care of my mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being and engaged in a lot of personal development work and hired a life coach and went to seminars and workshops and women's retreats. And there's a lot of years between my eating disorder to where I am now, but I started to learn about nutrition and food outside of the context of weight loss. I got exposed to plant-based diets and plant-based eating, and I started reading uh, books like The China Study. And my perspective of food really shifted and it became sort of like a form of activism, looking at the environment, you know, government regulations, animal agriculture, all of these things. And that was really liberating for me because for the first time in my life, food was about something other than controlling my body or fixing what I thought was wrong with myself. And I had several different careers here and there, but eventually opened a restaurant that I sold and then took to Instagram and was like, Instagram's going to bring me a career and started to post on Instagram. And then I got a health coaching certification and one thing led to another. And now I'm here where I am now with a, a health coaching business. So that's like the main thing that I do is I, I help people with their relationships with food and I support them through the healing journey that I went through from myself. So I, I teach from experience. I support people based on what I know from my own lived experience. And that has unfolded in so many beautiful ways. And now I'm talking to you. 
Wow. Wow. Gosh, Kara, um, if there were not a country in between us, we, we could go hang out. Uh, we have a, a very similar story. I talk usually about my binge eating disorder because that was the form that it took for the most years. But I also had an anorexic period um, around age 19. And I love the this phrase that you used. You said that you became interested in nutrition and food outside the context of weight loss. There are a lot of people who think it's not possible to be interested in nutrition and food outside that context. Tell us about that. Mm. So, you know, and, and over the last couple of years, well, I'll start at the beginning. So when I first was, ex when I first decided that I wanted to get better, I knew that I had to stop fixating on being skinny. So I, my whole goal was like control my weight, lose weight, be the tiniest and be the thinnest. And so I really had to like let go of that being the primary reason for why I was eating or why I was exercising or why I was, or how I was finding my worth. And so when I discovered that there was more to food than just like calories in calories out, when I discovered that there was more to food than than just changing what my body looked like, my world expand, my world view expanded. And what I have found through my own experience, through research from prominent people in the field, like health at every size researchers, like Dr. Lindo Bacon, was that when I was no longer so fixated on my weight, it was actually easier for me to maintain these behaviors. I wasn't in this like restrict binge cycle. I wasn't in this all or nothing black and white relationship with food where it was like I was either eating perfectly or I was like eating all the chips and the cookies known to man until I was sick to my stomach. And so part of it, what allowed me to create balance, not being so fixated on my weight. And a lot of it allowed me to actually take care of my health in a holistic way. Cause when I was fixated on weight, it was just my physical body. And I was doing things that were hurting my mental health, my emotional health and my spiritual health all at the expense of my physical body. So removing the focus on weight loss really actually made me so much healthier, which is counterintuitive to what you might think. Well, it's not counterintuitive to what I might think, because <laughs> I know <laughs> it's true. It, it's it's so interesting that people get the idea that that it's it's all or nothing, and and yet it can so be this wonderful holistic way of of relating to the body. So, what about your your veganism? Lots of times people with eating disorders are told, no, no, don't be vegan. That's just another way to restrict. But I think that you found, as I have, that it can actually play a role in recovery. How, how did that work for you? Yeah. So I, I do do think that for some people who are struggling with their relationship with food and working towards recovery, that veganism might feel too restrictive for them. So I do want to acknowledge that, that for some people, veganism might actually be their disorder. It might be how they're not eating, how they're justifying not eating. Oh, that's not, that's not vegan. I can't eat it. So it might be a way for them to disguise disordered eating. But like you had said, for me, that wasn't the case. My growing up, I grew up in the like Atkins era. 
And so for me, it was all about like low carb eating. And so my biggest fear food was carbohydrates. And then insert veganism, which to a large degree, plant-based eating is high carb eating. And so I was like, oh, like I'm allowed to eat these? Like, oh, these are okay. These nourish my body. My body needs these things like sweet potatoes, potatoes, rice, beans. Like these were foods that I was afraid of because of the car. I was even, I was afraid of fruit as well. And so plant-based eating helped me immensely get over my largest fear food. And then again, it also made food about the environment. It made the food about like shopping locally and supporting local farmers. It made it about animal agriculture and how that was affecting the animals and the workers. And so for me, it was incredibly transformative because it made food about something so much more than just me. It made it about the world. And I also, it helped me make peace with my other fear foods, like ice cream, for example. So I what was so passionate about eating in a way that aligned with my values. And so I felt safe within myself to like go get vegan ice cream, for example. Whereas when I was just like binging on regular ice cream, it was about like shame. It was about restriction. It was, it was like my all or nothing mentality. So veganism and plant-based eating like radically changed my perspective of what food was in my own life. Oh, that's beautiful. That is so beautiful. Maybe even though there is a country between us, we'll need to get together. Uh, <laughs> go have some green juice or some vegan ice cream. So I know that you support people in, in taking care of their health, but you also recognize that sometimes this taking care of one's health uh, can go too far and, and lead to disordered eating. So what do you do when you're working with somebody like that? Mm. So, so for example, a lot of what I see these days is when we get stressed out about taking care of our health, because there's so much information in the world of wellness and the world of nutrition, it's really easy to become really afraid of ingredients, of food quality. And I'm not saying that there isn't value in being aware of the quality of your food, being aware of how it's grown, how it's raised, the products you're using, there's value in all of that. And sometimes for some people, we can take it too far and it actually creates a lot of stress and anxiety in our life because we become afraid of, of food, we become afraid of going out to eat, we struggle with eating something that we didn't make and have control over. So it actually becomes something that disconnects us from our relationships, it disconnects have like our type of food or we're not spending time with our family because we're spending hours at the gym. So while I am such an advocate for people taking care of their health in ways that truly nourish them and help them feel good, because when we feel good and we have energy and vibrancy, we show up powerfully in the world. We get to do things that we love. We get to make a difference. We get to be of service. I've also seen where it's been taken too far and we are so stressed out about taking care of our health that it's actually hurting our mental, emotional, and spiritual health, which to some degree was what happened to me. And there's a new classification of disordered eating. It's not in the DSM yet as a, as a diagnosis for eating disorders, but it's a coined term called orthorexia. And it's when you're so fixated on the purity and the quality of your food that it actually interferes with your life. So there's like a fine line and it goes back to that black and white thinking that we've talked about a few times. And you described orthorexia, I think, better than I've ever heard it described before. 
I, I love that. It's when it interferes with your life. You can be just as healthy as you want to be as long as you're living your life. And so that's uh, beautiful. Thank you so much. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about your books, certainly before we lose you today. <laughs> <laughs> Vegan Buddha Bowls, because I have become a bowl fanatic. If I have to eat off a plate, it's a little bit of a disappointment. So you obviously are also in love with bowls. So tell us why and your bowl philosophy. Yeah, you're speaking my love language. <laughs> like just feed me delicious, nourishing food in a bowl and I will be the happiest camper. Um, so I've over the years gravitated toward bowls because there's like a comfort element to me. Like I associate like curling up on the couch with like a bowl of soup or curling up on the couch with a, you know, with a bowl of ice cream and it's comforting and it's pleasurable. And so I've over the years, like gravitated towards making food in a bowl, making recipes in a bowl. Like I'll make myself a piece of avocado toast and like place it upright in a bowl, like silly things like that. But what I have found is like with the rise of the Buddha bowl, which thanks to Instagram, I assume a lot of us know what a Buddha bowl is. You get to just put all of these fun, eclectic ingredients. It's great if you're just using whatever's left in the fridge, you can like throw it together and put a sauce on it. And you have an amazing meal that's like nourishing and that's satisfying. And one of the reasons why I wrote the book Vegan Buddha Bowls particularly was an ode to the role that plant-based eating had in my recovery journey. So like all throughout the book, I am talking about my journey and my relationship with food and what helped me so that anyone reading the book who's struggling can hopefully find solace, find support, know they're not alone. And, um, yeah, the book was really just like creative self-expression to the to 10th degree. So, yeah, I, I'm proud of it. I love it. And I definitely love eating out of bowls too. Yeah. So for, for people who are very rule bound, is there a rule? Is there a standard basic Buddha bowl or is it really just you put in there whatever you want to put in it? Hmm. I think it could go all, I think, I think there's validity to both sides of the spectrum. I, I would say that it is a spectrum. So like some could argue that like the best Buddha bowl is going to have like a grain. It's going to have some type of protein in there. Like, so you can have like quinoa or brown rice, for example, you can have quinoa or beans as your protein then, or like seitan, you can then have like some type of green. So maybe it's mixed greens or steamed kale, or you have arugula in there. And then maybe you'll have some other yummy vegetable. So like broccolini or cauliflower, et cetera. And then you have an amazing sauce. So I think that like the like quote perfect bootable would like cover all of the macronutrients and then also be like tasty and delicious. And I also totally think that like a bootable could be a really amazing chili with some like yummy toast on the side. You know, I think that to each their own, you could be really creative with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I love the, the name, just the concept. I mean, I understand it comes from the begging bowls in Eastern religions, but to me, when I think of a bootable, I think of, of a peace bowl. This is something that is going to be satisfying, nourishing. It's going to be enough. It's not going to trigger any weirdness. It's just going to be calm and peaceful and good. And if you want a little seconds, you get that too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and I'm, being pulled back to like the association that I have with eating out of bowls, which is really comforting. And so I 
completely feel what you're saying about it being something that's peaceful and something that is like truly, truly nourishing. Like while I think that like food is fuel, of course we need food to survive. I also think that food is so much more than that. And I think that it's emotional connection. It's about community. It's about culture. It can be a a massive form of self-care, like way past the point of just like putting, putting, gasoline in my car, so to speak. But it's like, I, you made this for yourself. You sourced these ingredients. You spent time in the kitchen. You put it together. You're sharing it with people you love. Like food has the power to be a really transformative, healing, moving experience. And I think it's easy in our fast paced, busy world to like eat on the go and to not be as present with our food, to not be as grateful for the food that we have and slowing down and being more present and being more mindful and investing in the time it takes to put a beautiful meal together. Like, I think that's like one of life's richest experiences. That is so beautiful, particularly knowing that you came from a disordered place and now you're, you're, you're beyond ordered. <laughs> you know, you've come to, to beauty. So just in our last few minutes, let us not... Uh, shy away from your other great passion, which is entrepreneurship, vegan entrepreneurship, women's entrepreneurship. You said a very interesting thing. You said that you believe before you got into social media, Instagram is going to give me a career. Wow. Tell us how you knew that and how that has worked for you. Yeah. So I, I am definitely someone that believes like in the manifestation process. So like you get this idea, you get these thoughts and then you take inspired action. And I am the type of person that when I, when I see something and I want it, I get into action. Even if I don't have it all figured out, I get into action around things and chase after it. And part of that is my like high achieving behavior, which has its pluses and minuses. But when I sold my restaurant, I was very confused about what was next. So I historically have always attached my worth to something outside of myself, like my body and my, my weight. And I've done so with my career and my productivity. And so when I no longer had anything going on post restaurant sale, I felt really bad about myself and I had really low self-esteem and anxiety because I had, I felt like I had no direction. And then I got this idea after like, you know, endlessly scrolling through Instagram of like, Oh, maybe this is, this is the next thing. And then I kept repeating it to myself. Like Instagram's going to bring me a career. Like I saw people who had businesses through Instagram who were getting brand deals and brand partnerships and, and doing coaching. And I was like, I want that. I see that as possible for me. And it's been a blessing and a curse. I spend a lot of time on my phone. I can easily get caught up in the vanity metrics, like the likes and the follows and the engagement. And I've also met amazing people. I've built such a strong community. I've gotten to go to really cool events and have all of these incredible opportunities that 10 years ago when I was struggling with my eating disorder, like Instagram wasn't a thing. You know, MySpace was kind of a thing. Facebook was kind of a thing. But being an online entrepreneur is something that is accessible to, I I should just say being an entrepreneur in general is significantly more accessible to, to people because of the internet, because of platforms like Instagram. And once I saw that opportunity and that possibility, I just went after it. And 
um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a blessing. It's been a blast. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you can find Kara Cefeli on Instagram at Kara's Kitchen. Uh, her website is karaskitchen.net. So for people who use Instagram and they put up pictures and some people like them, but the idea of ever getting to the point where you are, it, it just seems impossible. What are some of your tips and techniques and suggestions for other budding vegan entrepreneurs? Mm. So I found engaging with others has been really helpful. So I take the time almost every single day to like in, engage with other people on the platform, cultivate meaningful, real relationships. So reading their content and leaving a thoughtful comment, DMing them after watching their stories, that has been incredibly helpful in building relationships and leading to people then coming and finding my content after I've engaged with theirs. So using it as a, as a tool to build relationships. Other things that have been helpful is like learning about the algorithm and like when to post and how consistently and how often to create content. But the most important thing that I have found is to share what excites you, share what inspires you. And the, the people who resonate with your message and need your message and your magic are going to find you. And you're going to be less likely to burn out if you're sharing that which you genuinely, truly care about. So engaging, creating content that inspires you, being consistent, learning about the algorithm, because to some degree that is important, but overall using it as a tool to really connect with other human beings and seeing that it is a tool to help us connect with other people and reminding ourselves of that. Oh, that's beautiful. This is something when I work with uh, professional speakers and people who want to be professional speakers, it's the same thing that you said, share what excites and inspires you. Because if you're excited, you're going to excite the other people. Exactly. Yeah. Sharing what's real for me. So being really vulnerable, like I have some posts on there where I'm like, just like really spilling my heart and wearing my my heart on my sleeve and sharing what's real. And often those are the posts that get the most engagement is when I'm oh, just sharing what's real. Amen. And I think that's true with this program as well with this podcast. And you have just done that for all of us, for everybody listening today. Thank you so much, Kara Cefeli. Thanks to Heather Greenhouse, to everybody listening. Be happy, be healthy, be blessed, be vegan. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.